I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Nick McGaw, our retail banking correspondent, and our guest from Market Invoice, Chief Executive Anil Stocker. We're also joined down the line from New York by Laura Noonan, our US banking editor, and from Davos by our banking editor, David Crow, and Arash Masoudi, our corporate finance editor. And finally, from Zurich, we're joined by Stephen Morris, our European banking correspondent. This week, we'll take a look at US banker pay and what the latest evidence is on that and how it tracks results. A look at UBS's results as they disappoint the market. A curtain raiser for Davos 2019. And finally, that interview with Anil Stocker from Market Invoice as it takes on some new equity investors. First, though, to the US. Laura, you wrote a very interesting piece about a growing gap between US CEO pay in the banking sector and that of staff. And it comes on the back of last week's news that the 50 million euro package of pay that was outstanding to Andrea Rochel, the outgoing investment bank chief at UBS, as he prepared to join as CEO of Santander, became a kind of poison chalice and actually prevented him from going. Santander got cold feet about that. Tell us what's going on in the market. Are bankers losing all touch with reality? Well, I think there's probably two very separate issues there. There's the issue of CEO pay, that's pay at the very, very top, and that would also include Andrea Ortel, who, while he was not a chief executive of a banking group, he certainly earned a very high amount of money. So there's that issue, and then there's the issue of what happens to the masses of people working for the bank. So the piece we ran at the weekend was basically showing that across the six largest US banks, average pay per worker increased by 3%, and of the two US banks, chief executives who have already announced how much their pay went up by last year, we saw an increase of 7% for James Gorman, who is the Morgan Stanley chief executive, and an increase of 5% for Jamie Diamond, who's the JP Morgan chief executive. Let's just put those numbers into context. At this point, James Gorman, his total package for last year would have been $29 million, and Jamie Diamond's total for last year would have been $31 million. Now, the thing about the packages for the chief executives is that most of it is either in shares which are deferred, cash which is deferred or payments which can ultimately be clawed back. So those can become a noose around their neck because the problem is if these bankers leave their institutions as a bad leader, which basically translates to anyone who joins a competitor and they can define a competitor in pretty loose terms, if they leave the bank as a bad leader over a period of up to seven years, they could lose an awful lot of that. That's what Andrea Ortel found when he tried to leave UBS and join Santander because he would have had to forfeit a lot of compensation and give back a lot of his prior year UBS compensation. 
and Santander, in order to make him whole, would have had to either strike a deal with UBS to not enforce that, or would have had to actually just buy him out of it and give him Santander shares to replace the UBS shares. And this happens all the time down the ranks. I mean, if you have a managing director moving from one bank to another bank, it's pretty standard for them to be bought out of their deferred comp. Thing is, that deferred comp usually runs to millions, maybe to fives of millions. It doesn't usually run to an amount that would actually affect the share count of the bank. And I think to be seen publicly as well, to be paying someone that amount to join, it looks very bad. The other thing about the pay for the chief executives is it's ultimately linked to the performance of their institutions in the years to come. So most of it is in stock in those institutions, which take several years to vest and can then be restricted for several further years. So someone like Jamie Dimon, he got a total package of $31 million. If there were to be a collapse in the share price of JP Morgan Chase, then by the time he's actually able to sell those shares, they could be worth an awful lot less. That's not likely to happen in the case of that bank, but we've seen, I mean, we've kind of reported on the packages paid to some Deutsche Bank executives over the years. By the time those guys actually got their hands on those shares and were able to sell them, the packages were worth a whole lot less than what was originally reported. Okay. One final thought on this. Other than the declining share prices and therefore declining value of these packages potentially, do you think that we're likely to see any pressure brought to bear, either from shareholders or from, I suppose, society, because there's no sign, as you say, of this pace of increase slowing down at the moment. And interestingly, the Andrea Rochelle case blew up and he's now not got a job anywhere because, in part at least, Santander was concerned about the political fallout in Spain, given the socialist government and the political alliance they have with the populists there, Podemos. That seems to have been a factor there. Are we going to see that or indeed investor pressure act as a break on pay levels of very top bankers? So I think there's certainly a chance in the European context. So in the aftermath of the financial crisis, right across the world, we saw a backlash, I guess, more in terms of the morality of the pay than the actual economic impact of it. But like the morality of someone earning 30 million, 40 million dollars for essentially a year's work. I think in the European context, there's much more of a kind of populist movement around that where they say no one person can possibly be worth $30 million or can possibly need for their normal outlay $40 million a year. So I think there's certainly a break there, even regardless of the financial performance, even if they had the best year ever and they had better profits than Morgan Stanley or JP Morgan, I think it would be very hard for any European bank CEO to politically earn what Jamie Dimon and James Gorman are earning. In the US context, the vibe is a bit different. The banks, while the fourth quarter was a tough one, overall 2018 was very much a return to health. They're all posting double-digit return on equities. There's a pretty good vibe over here, despite the fact that there are a lot of potential issues on the horizon. I mean, all of the bank CEOs were all kind of adamant that this whole notion of recession, that this is purely a figment of everyone's imagination and that the underlying essentials of the economy are actually very strong. So I think the US banks will continue to pay themselves handsomely. There is some backlash from some shareholders, particularly on the issue of why should CEO pay being increasing faster than average worker pay. Investors do not want to see CEO pay rising at twice the rate of pay across the workforce. You get to big numbers pretty quickly. If you increase pay by 7% for a year for someone already earning $25 million, you fairly quickly get back to a $40 million level, a $50 million level. And I think while there is a tolerance for high pay in the US, I think getting to $40 million, $50 million per year is probably a boat too far for most investors. For the time being, though, on Wall Street, at least, it seems as if greed is still good. On that note, we'll leave it, Laura. Thank you. 
Let's move on now to UBS, which had some pretty disappointing results out on Tuesday. Stephen Morris, our European banking correspondent, is in Zurich and has been talking to the leadership of UBS about these results. Let's go over to Stephen now. Stephen, you've just been talking to some of the top brass at the bank about these pretty disappointing fourth quarter results. The shares were off in early trading about 4% after a pretty significant outflow of funds and lower profits than expected. What's gone wrong? Well, the bloodbath that we saw across Wall Street in the fourth quarter is now extended to Europe. UBS, one of the first banks to report it really hit their wealth management unit, an asset management unit where they lost $13 billion of client money. They were pulled out as they exited equities and other investments due to the turmoil in markets. And that swung through into the investment bank as well, which actually made a loss in the fourth quarter. So pretty dismal across the board. And we weren't hearing that much optimism from executives today about the start of 2019. It's been one of the worst Januaries, they said in living memory. So a lot to be bleak about in an already quite depressed European banking sector. And Chief Executive Sergio Motti recognising this, talking about the results not being satisfactory. There's also been in recent months and probably going back beyond that, a lot of speculation about how long Mr Motti's going to stay in his job. For the first several years of his tenure, he delivered probably above expectations and UBS was the darling of European banking for a good while. Is this latest set of results going to pile pressure on him either to move or to come up with a new kind of strategic plan? Well, he did talk about fuel-saving measures today, which largely seem to be cost-cutting related to just hiring fewer staff, delaying IT infrastructure projects. But it didn't seem like he was worried about the overall direction of his strategy. With regards to whether he stays on as CEO in his succession, he's reiterated his desire to stay in role for two or more years and dismissed a lot of the media reports we've been seeing about who's going to succeed him, either internal candidates or external people, such as the former head of Bank of America's investment bank, Christian Meisner. So it's a bit opaque what's going on at UBS at the moment. As you said, the shares were down 29% last year. They're down another 4.4% today. So he's got to be feeling a little bit of the pressure from his investors, but there's no sense that they're going to have to go back to the drawing board on what they're trying to do overall, which is, of course, de-emphasize the investment bank and make themselves into the world's largest wealth manager, predominantly focused on growth out in Asia. And of course, this sets the scene for a pretty weak set of results from other big European banks, not least their Swiss rivals, Credit Suisse, but also Deutsche, Barclays and so on. Exactly. Credit Suisse don't report until the 14th of February. So we've got a bit of space before we see those. But obviously, there's more turmoil going on over there as they start their restructuring, shrinking their investment bank a lot later. Of particular interest in the coming weeks towards the end of January will be Barclays, which is, of course, embroiled in an increasingly bitter dispute with an activist investor over whether they should be still involved in sales and trading in the investment bank. And if Barclays' results are as poor as UBS was today, then Mr. Edward Bramson, the activist, is going to have a little bit more fat to chew on. Absolutely. Well, we'll keep everyone posted on that. Thanks in the meantime for joining us, Stephen. Well, next, let's go for a special preview of Davos this year, getting underway on Tuesday. And some of the early sessions have been particularly interesting from a banking perspective. Arash Masoudi, our corporate finance editor, has been talking to David Crow, our banking editor, about those first day highlights. 
David, what was the main points that Brian Moynihan, the chief executive of Bank of America, made this morning on his session where he was asked whether the bank was too big to fail? Brian Monaghan admitted that Bank of America was big. He pointed out it had a 13% market share. And uh, as it operates in a very large economy, it therefore follows that it's a large bank. However, he pushed back against this idea, A, that the bank was too big to fail, and B, that there was never going to be another competitor to the very large U.S. players. He pointed out there were hundreds and hundreds of regional banks in the U.S. and predicted that they would consolidate over time to the point where they posed a challenge. David, you've been talking to bankers this morning and throughout the last few days about some of the major themes in global business. What is the dominant discussion point that's coming up in your talks with them? Well, the short answer is China, China, China. Everybody is worried both about the Chinese slowdown and the trade tensions between China and the U.S. I was talking to the chief executive of Julius Baer yesterday, Switzerland's largest standalone private bank. And he was saying that they're noticing that caution feed through to how their clients, their very high net worth clients, are acting. He was saying that they're holding more cash than they used to, for instance, some movement at the beginning of the year, but not enough. And throughout, everybody is hopeful that this gets sorted. March the 1st is the deadline date. And that is really, on day one, the issue that is most top of mind. Now, Arash, on this morning's panel, also one of the titans of the private equity industry, Steve Schwartzman, he had some interesting words to say on this idea that some pools of capital were getting too large. What did he say in response to a question about SoftBank? Well, it was a bit of a point of departure for Schwartzman in his response to the question on the Vision Fund, because typically he's been effusive of Masasan and how clever he's been to see an opportunity to raise a lot of money, namely from Saudi Arabia and Abu Dhabi, and to attack it with a single-minded kind of strategy around tech. At the same time, while he didn't explicitly name him, he did say there's an upper limit when you deploy too much money in one strategy, you'll crush your performance because there's not enough interesting opportunities. And that definitely seemed to be some sort of dig at SoftBank. You know, in the last few weeks, we've been chronicling uh, its scaled back investment in WeWork and some of its other moves. So it will be interesting to see how Schwartzman and the Blackstone team look at getting into tech. And he was talking a lot about artificial intelligence, which was interesting because Blackstone has traditionally been not very sophisticated around tech. So perhaps he was giving some clues about where Blackstone is headed. So Arash, this year's list of attendees is just as notable for those who are not on it due to problems at home. The likes of Donald Trump, Emmanuel Macron, and of course, Theresa May have not come to Davos this year. Who's missing from the business side? Yeah, in one sense, the lack of world leaders from the US, UK and France has made this even more tilted towards business. But there's a couple of characters who, while it is mine and yours first time in Davos, there are many people who've frequented this circuit and their absence is notable. Among those is Carlos Ghosn, who is the chief executive of France's Renault and is chairman of the Nissan-Renault alliance, although chairman no longer and CEO no longer. Uh, he's in prison and notably today was denied his second request at bail to get out of prison stemming from charges from the Japanese prosecutors over his pay packages and incentive programs from Nissan. 
And another character who's missing, again, who we never got to see in the flesh here, but who made quite a figure, including hiring the piano barman for his own personal parties, is Arif Nakvi, who was the founder of Abraj, the leading emerging markets private equity fund based out of the Gulf. His fund basically unraveled in scandal, and their absences have definitely left a mark on the circuit here. And of course, from the world of banking, the man who is kind of Davos personified, Andrea Orsell, is also not on the list this year. Caught between a rock, UBS, and a hard place, Santander, which last week withdrew its offer of employment for him to become the next chief executive. But worry not, I'm here and Arash is here and we'll be bringing you coverage throughout the week. Let's move on now to our final topic of the day and a look at Market Invoice, which is a fintech startup that was launched, I think I'm right in saying, about eight years ago. Anil Stocker, the chief executive, is with us today. And you've just announced a new funding round. You've raised £26 million of fresh equity, including, very interestingly, money from a couple of banks, Barclays and Santander. Tell us what's this money for and why is it important for you to have brought the banks on board? Yes, absolutely. It was you know, really exciting to announce this news yesterday, testament to the whole team that's worked so hard and I guess the value that we're building as a company focusing on SME finance here in the UK. You know, We're very excited to bring in strategic investors such as Barclays and Santander's fintech fund InnoVentures. We announced last year that we were working on a strategic partnership with Barclays. So Barclays in the UK banks about 25% of UK small businesses, um, big market share, and they would like to get more lending solutions into that customer base faster. So it makes quite a lot of sense for us to team up. Market Invoice has a lot of experience over the last seven, eight years funding small businesses with invoice finance, business loans. We've put $2 billion through our platform in that time. And partnering with Barclays is exciting because we can get a lot more distribution and educate business owners across the country that you know there's new ways of getting the capital they need to grow. We look to partner with many different types of institutions. You know, banks is very interesting for us because they have large customer bases, but also rich data sets that go back a long way in the past. So we're able to take that data, refine our models, and also get out to more customers and build awareness. But that also means that we'll partner with accountancy softwares and you know insurance companies, uh, credit insurers. You know the beauty of our platform is that it is open and we can connect with lots of different parties. And from the bank's point of view, what do you give them that they couldn't do themselves? So interestingly, it's not just technology. I I think a lot of people talk about the problems that big banks have in upgrading their legacy systems, rolling out new products. When I sit and talk to very senior people at the banks, it's also cultural. They view us as being a catalyst for digital change within their business. And business lending is not just a pure, I mean, technology can make it very easy, but business owners, entrepreneurs, what we've learned is that they like to have a human interaction. They like to have quality service, people who are able to understand their businesses and be there for them. Because this is very, you know, this is an important decision that they make. So I would say that for big banks like Barclays, not only are we able to roll out products faster, you know, we're nimbler, we can take the latest technologies and apply them. We also have, you know, a team and a brand and a culture that will help them get things done in their big institutions. Nick, can I bring you in here? Because this is the latest example of big established banks putting equity finance or in other ways partnering with fintechs what do you think the end game is here is it a kind of purchase acquisition takeout of all of these fintech startups 
as you say, this is the latest in a growing number of partnerships between the big banks and fintech players. We've got Santander now, through their interventions, I think have invested in more than 20 companies around the whole world, actually. Their Spanish rivals, BBVA, have been very active. And we've had the chief exec of CYBG, for example, in the UK on here before saying that he's very keen on this sort of partnership. How it ends is an interesting question. So on BBVA, for example, they have invested in the UK's Atom Bank. They have an option to buy out the rest of that and maybe considering that at the moment, Barclays, when they set up a sort of venture capital style unit last year, they said that they'd be looking to partner with people, but also to potentially just full on buy businesses. So I think in some cases you will definitely see complete takeovers. But that depends partly on the willingness of the fintechs to try and go it alone or just keep working with a wider range of companies. There's also sometimes for the big banks, there's certain areas where they don't necessarily need to own the whole business. So I think in business banking especially, it's quite a good area for it because a lot of the big banks pulled out of certain aspects of lending in the wake of the financial crisis. They don't necessarily want to get back into that. They're happy being out of it, but they know that there's demand from the customers. So if they can keep the relationship with the customer by saying, well, we can't do this, but we can steer you towards this partner of ours. They get to keep that relationship with the customer without actually having to fully get into that business themselves. Let me bring Anil back in for a final word. What is your end game? Are you looking to be bought out by a big bank or are you very keen to stay independent? I would say it's difficult to paint the whole industry with one brush. You know, different fintechs have different approaches. We've seen fintech companies, IPO, others have become banks themselves. And, and as we've heard, some might get bought by banks. But our philosophy at Market Invoice has always been to take advantage of partnerships. You know, we don't view it as a zero-sum game. We don't view that, you know, we have to own all customer relationships. We've always been very happy to collaborate, and we've done that with a number of different parties. So we are an independent company with an independent brand. We have some great partners that we're very excited to work with now and in the future and we're just excited about building a big business and helping lots of entrepreneurs and uh, I think if you do that the exit will take care of itself well good luck with it thank you very much for joining us that's it for this week all that's left for me to do is to thank Nick and Anil here in the studio Arash and David in Davos Stephen in Zurich and also Laura Noonan in the US thank you too for listening if you're not already an FT subscriber do take a look at our latest subscription offer at ft.com offer and remember you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com banking Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon until next week goodbye When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.